You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the November 2023 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I will be interviewing Chris Lane, who is the first author of a paper titled Social, Cultural, and Economic Disparities in Physical Therapy Utilization Among Insured Older Adults with Rheumatoid Arthritis. He will give you an overview of the findings of this paper. What What did you find? Okay, yeah, so so one of the um, large results was the PT use itself. So only about 10 to 13% of the overall sample used um, any PT services during that time period. And, um, and in addition to that, um, the median number of visits was um, eight to nine um, in the overall sample. Now, the breakdown was pretty, uh, pretty spread out across the different categories, but about 10% um, had only one to two visits, about 30% had three to eight visits, um, 35% had 9 to 18 visits, and about 27% had over 18 visits. And then kind of our other main outcomes were, um, through, were the associations between race and dual coverage, and then the PT use and number of visits. And that was, I mean, examined that um, through uh, logistic regression analyses, and I can just kind of summarize that a bit. So we adjusted for um, different patient characteristics like age and sex, and then we also adjusted for comorbidities and um, DMARD use. And those are disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, which I didn't explain earlier. But yeah, those are common for RA. But um, there were no interactions between race and ethnicity and dual coverage. And that's something else that we wanted to look for too, if race and ethnicity and dual coverage were, would interact in the, in the analyses or not. But yeah, there were no interactions with any of these outcomes. And then to talk a bit more about the odds ratios, which are um, common, of course, with logistic regression. So we observed that um, non-Hispanic Black individuals and Hispanic individuals had lower odds of PT use compared to non-Hispanic White individuals. And then adults with uh, dual coverage, the Medicare Medicaid or the proxy for low income, had lower odds of PT use than adults with Medicare coverage only. So, um, and then we found a couple other differences too among some of the other characteristics that we looked at, such as people who use DMODs or um, people who identify with female sex were, and those were associated with greater odds of PT use. And then uh, people who had morbidity impairments or were of old age um, were associated with lower odds of PT use. And then for the secondary outcome of number of PT visits, there were no differences in the distribution of PT visits across the race and ethnic groups. Um, however, people, adults with dual coverage, had lower odds of using more PT services compared to a lower a number of visits. So really, so kind of to summarize that, then people with dual coverage or the lower income really had a fewer number of PT visits and really in the sample. I hope you enjoyed listening to Chris Lane review the findings of a study entitled Social, Cultural, and Economic Disparities in Physical Therapy. Utilization Among Insured or Older Adults with Rheumatoid Arthritis. 
I think you will enjoy listening to the full interview and reading the full-length article. I also suggest that you read the accompanying editorial regarding this article titled Unequal Treatment, Physical Therapy Utilization in Rheumatoid Arthritis, and it is by Dr. Jennifer Barton from Oregon Health and Science University, Portland, USA. Both the paper and the editorial are currently available on our website at www.jroom.org. Now we'll move along to the papers. In a treatment-to-target approach of remission or low disease activity in rheumatic diseases, some patients still may have residual disease activity. In their paper titled, Factors Associated with Residual Disease in Axial Spondyloarthritis, Results from a Clinical Practice reg Registry, Weber's and colleagues explored this issue in patients with axial spondyloarthritis, or SPA. They looked at a cohort of 396 patients with actual axial spa from two large Dutch hospitals. From this cohort, they found 267 patients who had an ankylosing spondylitis disease activity score, or ASDAS, of less than 2.1, which is indicative of the low, low disease activity or remission. The mean age of this cohort was 50.6 years, and 37.5 were female. They found that at least one indicator of residual disease was found in 66.7% of patients in remission, and 87.2% of patients with low disease activity. And therefore, for the overall cohort, 81.7% of patients had at least one indicator of residual disease activity. The prevalence was consistently higher in females. They found that fatigue was the most commonly found indicator of ACT disease for both sexes. Pain and limitation in physical function was, were present in approximately one-sixth of the patients. Despite these findings of residual disease activity, the majority of patients, 88.8%, and of physicians, 97.1%, considered that the current disease state was acceptable. Figure one of the paper illustrates via an overlapping Venn diagram the relationships and overlap of all indicators of residual disease activity. In the discussion, the authors described the significance of their findings to clinical practice and discussed the need to better address residual disease despite the achievement of remission or low disease activity. Moving on, interstitial lung disease leads to significant morbidity and mortality in patients with anti-myeloma differentiate associated gene 5 positive dermatomyositis. 
Previous studies have shown that a combination of triple therapy, which includes high-dose glucocorticoids, a calcineurin inhibitor, an intravenous cyclophosphamide, improved six-month outcome as compared to conventional therapy. In an article entitled Long-Term Prognosis of Anti-Melanoma Differentiation-Associated Gene-5-Positive Dermatomyositis with Interstitial Lung Disease, Sasai and colleagues retrospectively evaluated the long-term outcome of 68 patients with dermatomyositis interstitial lung disease, or DMILD, who were treated with either triple therapy in 56, 56 patients or mono or duo therapy in the remaining 12. All patients in order to enter this long-term study must have re achieved remission for greater than six months. The overall survival for the total cohort was 100% with a five-year recurrence-free survival rate of 90% for triple therapy and 56% for monodual therapy. With withdrawal rates of calcineurin inhibitors and glucocorticoids at 10 years were higher in the triple therapy cohort as compared to those with mono or duo therapy at 79% versus 0% for calcineurin inhibitors and 43% versus 0% for glucocorticoids. In the discussion, the authors outlined an important limitation of this study, which included that they studied only patients who had achieved remission at six months rather than the total treated cohort. Despite this and other limitations, this paper has important implications for treating patients with dermatomyositis-associated interstitial lung disease. Next paper is particularly close to my pediatric heart. Temporomandibular joint involvement in JIA can result in significant joint disruption and long-term morbidity. The third art article to highlight by Sonneville and colleagues was titled Clinically Established Temporal Mandibular Involvement in Adults with Juvenile Arthritis Examined TMJ Function of JI Patients in Adulthood. In this cross-sectional study, TMJ function was examined in 100 adults with JIA, mean age 28.8 years, of which 75% were female, and they compared it, this function to 59 healthy adults. Overall, 56% of the JIA patients had TMJ involvement, and they tended to be older with a longer disease duration than those without TMJ involvement. As may be expected, polyarticular rheumatoid factor negative, JIA, was the most common subgroup of JIA patients who demonstrated TMJ involvement. 
The most common abnormal findings were crepitation, jaw deviation on opening, pain while eating, jaw asymmetry, and retrognathia. Important to current therapies, TMJ involvement was more prevalent in patients who were who had their onset of diagnosis prior to the biologic era at 70% as compared to 39% in patients from the biologic era. This article also outlines how to perform a standardized TMJ examination in adults with a history of JIA. In an accompanying editorial titled Chew on This, the afterbite of temporomandibular joint involvement in adults with juvenile idiopathic arthritis by doctors Evelyn Rosenblum, Mercedes Chan, and Natasha Kakar from the University of Toronto, Toronto, Canada, and the British Columbia Children's Hospital, Vancouver, Canada, review the literature of TMJ involvement in JAA and into adulthood. This article as, as well as the original article, emphasized the importance of a standardized examination for TMJ involvement in adults with a history of JA even in the current biologic era. Final paper to highlight examines the impo important issue of knee replacement in patients with osteoarthritis. Although end-stage knee arthritis will lead to knee replacement surgery, currently there are few, if any, proven therapies to prevent progression of this. Therefore, it is important to develop easily obtainable surrogate endpoints for clinical trials designed to decrease or prevent knee replacement. In, the in this article, titled The Prognostic Potential, of end-stage knee osteoarthritis and its components to predict knee replacement data from the Osteoarthritis Initiative by Dribben and colleagues examined how two definitions of end-stage knee osteoarthritis staging and each individual component related to the development of future knee replacements. The two definitions of and stage knee osteoarthritis status used included knee symptoms, persistent knee pain, radiographic severity, and the presence of limited mobility or instability and looked at the prediction for knee replacement. The study examined the total of 8,550 15 knees from 4,324 individuals who were part of the osteoarthritis initiative. They were examined in baseline to the first four annual follow-up visits. And then data on the replacement was available from baseline until the fifth yearly visit. The cohort were greater than 65 years old. 58% were female, 82% white, and 50% did not have radiographic evidence of knee arthritis at baseline. Over the next five years, 
303 knees received a knee replacement. When they examined data from a single visit, they found that a model with components of the end-stage knee osteoarthritis staging scale or radiographic evidence using the Calgren-Lawrence or KL grading both performed well. However, when they examined change, KL grades differed only by small improvement over a model that relied only on participant characteristics rather than radiographs. They, in fact, found that the change in the end-stage knee osteoarthritis state offered the best prognostic potential. This was particularly true for the alternative definition, which was easier to perform, as it does not require examination of limited mobility, mobility or instability. The authors concluded that radiographic severity can be used as a screening tool to determine a knee that will likely receive a knee replacement. However, the end-stage knee osteoarthritis state especially the alternative definition, may be an ideal outcome in clinical trials because a change in this status was a predictor of future knee replacement. This article is important reading for anyone interested in clinical trials to prevent or delay knee replacement therapy in patients with knee osteoarthritis. The image in rheumatology this month describes a 30-year-old female with ankylosing spondylitis who had been on adalimumab therapy for approximately one year. She presented with a two-week history of eye floaters. Visual acuity was 20-20 bilaterally, and there is no evidence of anterior or vitreous chamber inflammation. Fundoscopic examination revealed right-sided edematous optic nerve head and a normal left-sided optic nerve. The remainder of the patient's physical and ocular, including neurologic examinations, were normal. The only abnormality found on MRI or CT was bilateral lymph node involvement, particularly the posterior cervical chains. The syphilis rapid plasma reagent was elevated at 1 to 640, and lumbar punctural examination of the cerebral spinal fluid was reactive with a venereal disease research lab ratio of 1 to 2 with evidence of increased number of white cells. Patient was diagnosed with neurosyphilis and was treated with intravenous penicillin. Fundoscopic examination at four months was normal. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only the articles I brought to your attention, but all the articles in the November 2023 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition 
or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. I encourage you to watch my interview with the author of today's highlighted paper, but also previous months if you had missed them. They are available for viewing at both our website as well as on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles or any articles in the, which appeared in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen next month to the December edition of Edivere's Highlights. Thank you. Thank you.